Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, it's Rob here from the Dig Deep, the Mining podcast. And today I'm interviewing Andy Carter, Technical Director of Coffee Geotechnics UK, a wholly owned subsidiary of Tetratech Incorporation and he's the leader of their Swindon Mining Group. He has a wealth of experience in mining and mineral processing and within a consultancy environment. So it'd be interesting to hear about his journey and how the industry has developed. So hi, Andy. Yeah, hi, Rod. Nice to chat with you. And yourself. Um, So let's get straight into this. So just want to know back in the day in the 1980s when you started your career, how you uh, actually got involved in mining and before you studied mining, at university, how you actually got into the industry. Yeah, all right, Rob, now you're making me feel old. Uh, actually, it goes about perhaps a little bit further back than that to the, the mid-70s. Uh, essentially, when I was doing my uh, my A-levels, uh, we were encouraged to undertake a number of general studies options, and uh, I elected to do one on, on civilization. And uh, whilst we were studying civilizations, it became apparent that the uh, the great civilizations were largely built on trade in mineral commodities, especially gold, silver, copper, tin, lead, iron, and even things like dimension stone were, were traded in the in the ancient world. And even today, I, the entire fabric of, of our society is uh, based on the exploitation of minerals. Uh, yeah. Even if I just take a look around the office here, and just about everything that I'm surrounded with uh, has come out the ground. Certainly, yeah, from a from a from a mine site somewhere somewhere around the world. Yeah, so, absolutely. So obviously, you then finished school, or whether that was sixth form, and then went to university. What made you then yeah. decide, I suppose, to study? a mining subject and what subject did you actually study? Well, in the end, I went to uh, Leeds University, which at that time had uh, a mining department, one of the old illustrious schools, which sadly is no more. And also there was another attraction for me. I'm a a bit of a bandsman. So I also wanted to immerse myself in the uh, Yorkshire brass banding culture. So that was uh, another attraction. (laughs) But um, essentially... <laughs> yeah, I play a cornet. I, I play a cornet, so uh, I, I I still enjoy my banding. I've been doing it for years, off and on. So it's, uh, uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, um, you know the thing that caught me at the time. You know, um, rather like today in the seventies and eighties, you know, opportunities for youngsters and that were were somewhat limited. And it basically occurred to me that if I was involved in minerals extraction or in the extraction process in the in the production line somewhere, I might have some measure of um, of job security. So yeah. uh, in those days, that was a, that was a, a big consideration for me, and I'm sure for for many other people. And and so um, uh, I was persuaded that uh, you know minerals processing was the way to go. And uh, I've been working in the minerals industry constantly now for nearly 40 years yeah so obviously you studied mineral engineering at university once you completed your studies 
how was the job market then and how did you get into the workforce? Well, actually, I was I was quite lucky uh, uh, compared to some of my counterparts. Uh, when I when I graduated, I, I essentially had four job offers, uh, two in the UK and yeah. two in South Africa. In fact, uh, both the offers I had in South Africa were on the platinum mines. One was with uh, uh, Anglo-American at the time and the other one was with uh, Union Corporation. Yeah, I was being pressed to make a decision. And so I decided that I would uh, stay at home until Christmas time and then go out and start my new uh, career in the new year. And then I was being forced to make a decision, uh, being pushed by various groups. And then I, I elected to go with uh, a union corporation at the time, which was the sort of the best offer as a youngster I had yeah. on, on paper. Was, and, I was just about to say, what were what were the offers? What from what companies and what positions? I take it they were all graduate roles. What? Well, both. I mentioned that if I was heading off to South Africa, I was going to the platinum mines because I yeah. was with uh, uh, what Amplats, as it was uh, yeah. at Rustenburg section, and also at mineral processes in Rustenburg. So it was going to be South Africa, Rustenburg, and the platinum mines. Yeah. And uh, in the UK, I had a, another offer from Staveley Industries at the time, and the other one was uh, English China Clays. And certainly, uh, obviously, the uh, platinum uh, appeared. Uh, a lot more uh, romantic and uh, and attractive at the time, so uh, I was went off to South Africa. Okay, and how was that? Well, that was that, was that it a was bit excellent. of a culture change. Uh, well, it was, uh, but I I emigrated. I mean, I uh, you know I didn't go to live in Little England beyond the wave sort of thing. I yeah. I was fully fully integrated in the into the local community there in Rustenburg. I was a member of the local flying club, um, a member of the local chamber of commerce, and was involved in the business community a little bit there. And you know, I speak Afrikaans, uh, and uh, yeah, I was totally integrated into the community over there whilst I was there. I was there in South Africa for 15 years altogether. Yeah, and you worked for the one company, or did you? No, well, yes. Uh, well, yeah, essentially. Um, I joined initially, as I mentioned, uh, Union Corp. And uh, very soon after, Union Corp merged with what was then General Mining to form a company uh, called Genmin, which some people may or may not remember, which subsequently became Gencore. Okay. And uh, and everybody knows then along the development that uh, Gencore acquired uh, the Billiton assets uh, from Royal Dutch Shell became Billiton, and then ultimately merged with uh, BHP to become uh, what is today BHP Billiton. Yeah. Um, I started off in the uh, in the platinum division there at Rustenburg. Uh, thereafter, I moved to the uranium, golden uranium division, um, which was then Gen Gold, and um, thereafter to the minerals uh, technology division, yeah. where, I was, well, where I was involved in the commercialization and the development of the Biox technology. And uh, I was fortunate enough to undertake the design of the first two uh, Biox plants outside of the Gencore groups, which was okay. Harbour Lights in, in Australia and Willuna also in Western Australia. And uh, I finished up my time uh, with uh, the Gencore group uh, uh, with their engineering division, which was then uh, known as Gencore Engineering Technologies. Uh, and thereafter, I uh, left South Africa and went off to went off to Canada. Okay, just obviously uh, talk about South Africa. What was it? What was it like uh, working as an expat, a British expat, working in South Africa? Well, I mean, number one, I was very grateful of the opportunity. The the old South African mining house type structure was a was fantastic for the development of um, of young uh, young engineers. I mean, we were we were indulged and uh, we indulged ourselves as well. And uh, when it came to the 
the engineering you know, formation and training, we had the luxury to pursue technical uh, interests and, and, and technical challenges with uh, a great deal of rigor. And we were afforded the time and, and, as I said, the luxury to be able to do that, which is something that um, we're not able to do or youngsters are not able to do so easily these days. So I felt that I was very privileged uh, to be extended that opportunity. And as I said, I worked around all the groups. So whilst I was out there, I was exposed to all the mainstream mineral commodities and uh, all the mainstream um, extraction processes. So um, it was a, a huge benefit to me personally and, and to my career. And uh, I'm forever thankful for the opportunities uh, afforded to me by uh, Uni Corporation and, and Genco. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, was, uh, it was really, really a good time. Yeah. Uh, but then, as in all careers, uh, you reach a time when uh, uh, you have uh, other opportunities come your way. And uh, it was just at that point, after 15 years, uh, an, another opportunity arose, um, which was with the old uh, Kilbourne Engineering Pacific uh, in Vancouver, Canada. And um, it was another one of those of too good to miss. So yeah. I elected to move on at, uh, at that point. Yeah. And so you moved to Canada. And yeah. if you can just briefly tell us a little bit about your, your work there. Oh, well, as I said, I, I joined uh, Kilbourne Engineering Pacific uh, in Vancouver as a senior metallurgist, where I was essentially involved in uh, consulting engineering practice. A whole bunch of clients, uh, all well-known people. Uh, I ended up actually doing quite a lot of work for Eldorado at the time. Okay, and, yeah. Uh, and, and I ended up um, uh, working for them at, at, at one point. And... Uh, yeah, it was a great experience. I was there for for nearly four years. Uh, once again, a great experience. Um, and it was good after being in South Africa and going through the transition, it was good to sort of reintegrate uh, with the, the Western world and the, and the Western mining scene and yeah. uh, realign, realign my interests and uh, a modern Western OECD type economy. It was, uh, it was a good move. What would you say the main differences are working in South Africa to Canada? Well, I can't really comment um, about South Africa today. I can only compare with, you know, South Africa then and my experience, recent experience of uh, Canada and North America, because uh, I returned from the States in uh, in 2004. Um, but the main difference is, I guess in my time, as I said, it was the, I, it might, might sound a bit pompous and, 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 that, and perhaps a bit arrogant, but... I guess the difference in terms of engineering practice, I would say that in the old days in South Africa, it was the intellectual rigor, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, we went into things in immense detail. And uh, when she, once I reintegrated in, in a conventional practice here in the West, I mean, you simply didn't have the time to do it and you didn't have the luxury or yeah. the budget. Um, and so you weren't able to, but having had the opportunity earlier in my uh, uh, career to pursue things to the nth degree, I was able to, you know, bring that to um, my, my current, you know, consulting work. Yeah. And, you know, uh, issues would come up, which I'd previously investigated in great depth, and I was able to provide insights and experience and, and, and knowledge um, that um, – some of the, my clients weren't weren't aware simply weren't aware of, and yeah. um, so that's why it was a big 
benefit yeah um these days i mean i'm in consulting practice right now you know it's it's time and money all right yeah. it's the old project management cost quality time equation that you're constantly dealing with and yeah these days we we neither have the time uh, nor the luxury to go into technical issues the way we used to when i was in yeah i understand i mean from obviously from what you've said so far you've had a variety of experience working in south africa working in obviously Canada, you would have seen and worked with a lot of different people, worked with a lot of mineral processing plants, for instance, that, that you've already mentioned. Um, and then obviously you then came back to the UK with all this wealth of experience. So how was your journey after leaving Canada, coming back to the UK? How did you see yourself comparable to other people with, I suppose, a similar amount of experience that may have only just worked in the UK uh, and you've brought this wealth of experience back with you so how do you um how do you say you compare to other people well that's a bit bit of a hard question perhaps a bit of an unfair uh, question you know i i don't normally like to draw draw personal uh, uh, comparisons but what yeah. i would would say is that uh, basically having lived and worked around the entire english speaking world and uh, yeah. been in the industry all that time i i did feel that in a personal context essentially well-equipped and, yeah. and experienced essentially to take on pretty much any uh, any challenge that was presented to me so you know it was just the the value basically of having traveled and worked in the industry around the world uh, obviously uh, experience counts for a lot you know right. that's it it's uh, and i had i came back with a, a an established track record in a in a range of industries and in a range of technologies so I was well placed. Yeah. I set up my own com uh, consulting practice for a couple of years, yeah. uh, which I was busy doing, and then I was uh, then I was recruited by uh, a former colleague. Okay, just just and again, I didn't know you had your own uh, practice. How, how was that starting your own business? And um, and I suppose what challenges did you face? Um, and and again, I suppose what challenges did you face? What what you liked about starting your own business? Um, I'm sure the uh, audience would like to uh, hear your views on that. Well, obviously, over the years and uh, living all around the world, I'd uh, established uh, an old boy network, essentially. Yeah. And, and you rely on, uh, on the old boy network and uh, your former colleagues and, and that to, uh, to give you work and to give you assignment and, uh, and to keep the wool from the door. So uh, initially, yeah, it's quite tough uh, getting set up, but uh, having that old boy network to draw on, and people who I could just pick up the phone and speak to was obviously uh, a great benefit in, in terms of setting up my own practice. Yeah. And I continued, I continued to work with people who I'd been working with for, for years uh, in my own practice uh, as I, and as I developed uh, new clients and, and new projects at the same time. So I, I would say that that's the, that's the main thing. It's having that established old boy network on which you can call on and which you can draw on if you're looking to set yourself up on your own like that, it's it's absolutely essential. So, you know, for the folks out there, you know, networking, you know, maintain building your network, maintaining your network. Uh, and that is, is absolutely yeah. uh, critical because uh, you, you never know when you're going to have to call on friends yeah, <laughs> to help you. Can you give any tips on sort of networking and how, or maybe how you go about networking? And that, and obviously you would have an established Pe established people that you already know but if you're looking to to meet new people is there a particular way that you you actually do that 
Yeah, I would say that when you're speaking to your your friends um, and that and your colleagues about work, oftentimes they just won't have anything. Yeah. Okay. And so one of the most important things in development um, and that of your network, never leave a conversation or never leave anybody's office empty handed. If, if the minimum you come out with is a referral to somebody else, then it was worth the effort. So oftentimes, if I was speaking to friends, they say, oh, well, Andy, we don't have anything for you right now. And that, you know, we don't see anything. Then I would say, well, um, uh, do you know of anybody or, or yeah. is there anybody else I should be speaking with? You know, uh, what do you know about this project? Uh, do you have any contacts over there? So I think one of the most important thing is to is to consider, uh, you know, referrals and, yeah. and, and make sure that, you know, never be frightened to ask for the job. And yeah. um, if 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 the guys can't give you the job, well, then ask them if there is somebody else who can give you a job. Certainly, certainly. and that's yeah. that's great advice for the audience. Um, yeah, you know, never be never never be too shy or yeah. too proud to to ask for work. Yeah, certainly, because obviously, if you don't ask, you don't get. But no, that's good. That's, that's good advice. Obviously, if if you're speaking with people and they don't have anything immediate to offer, they could do in the future. So it's always obviously yeah. to. Uh, speak and obviously leave with them on good terms but also yeah. like you said ask for a referral so that's and uh, the big thing yeah the big thing about uh, referrals rob is this is uh, you know the way to use it if if one of your buddies who's a uh, you know a hot shop manager in a, in a mining company or something gives you a referral then it's an excellent entree into introduction when you pick up the phone certainly. and you speak and you speak to the prospect uh, you 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 name drop and you and you say uh, Mr. So and So of X Y Z um, organization suggested I should give you a call. Yeah, and that and then you get immediate credibility there because it's a colleague. Uh, they know him. They know him professionally, and they're happy to listen to what you have to say. Uh, yeah. But you've got four minutes to make your pitch, so be prepared. Rehearse it. Think through what you're going to say and, and be ready to go when you uh, do the cold call. Yeah. Before we go on to speak about uh, TetraCheck, I just want to wonder if you can just summarise what a mining consultancy or consultancy like yourselves, what you offer the industry. So maybe people that may be less experienced or people that haven't worked in the consultancy environment, um, probably give them a good overview of what you guys actually do and what you can offer. Well, our particular organization is an interesting one. Um, we are a product. Uh, we come out of what was the old um, um, Wardrop yeah. um, company in Canada. And what Wardrop did during the super cycle and that of the you know 2006 onwards, uh, Wardrop decided that they were going to move more into base and precious metals. They brought in a guy to run that initiative. They set up a number of offices uh, across Canada. And uh, the UK office was the first office outside of, of Canada that they developed, they decided that they needed to grow, they needed to grow quickly, yeah. and part of their growth strategy was to internationalize. So for them, uh, moving into the UK was uh, an appropriate strategy. Yeah. And they had a model then at that stage, they set up these offices across Canada, they had offices at the time in, in Vancouver, uh, in Sudbury, and in Toronto, uh, which were essentially set up to 
uh, support the junior and mid-tier miners listed on the VSX and the TSX okay. and, yeah. lead, and, and lead them through the, the formal studies, you know, under 43101. That's all the way from the, the initial sort of maiden resources, technical reports, maiden resources, all the way through the PEAs, PFSs and FSs. Yeah. And also at the time, um, these officers were also to act as a, as a feeder uh, for the EPCM group. So by leading clients all the way through the project development path, uh, when it comes to execution, then we would hand off to the EPCM group. Not an easy task to do. Uh, obviously, uh, projects change hands, yeah. uh, new management, new owners, new new ideas, new ways of doing things. You don't always get to go from start to finish, uh, but we've been fortunate. We've done a couple of projects where we've essentially gone all the way through from geochem sampling all the way through into execution. So uh, yeah. uh, that's been gratifying when, when it happens, but I'd say it's fairly rare to be able to do that. So yeah. we were set up essentially as a, uh, a study shop, if you like, to do the same for the companies that are listed on the LSEA in this part of the world. So we're primarily a consulting uh, engineering shop. We do get involved in some front-end engineering, um, for example, feed, but we seldom go beyond uh, feed. We're, we're just not big enough here in the UK to yeah. uh, undertake um, more significant work than feed, but we will we will usually take projects as far through uh, to feed, and then we will either hand off to our EPCM division yeah. or or hand off to the um, the client's nominated engineer at that point. Yeah. So what kind of services, uh, is it obviously a range of services that a consultancy will offer to mining companies, EPC, uh, M companies? Is it a range of services or do you sort of package it up or it could be either? Well, I would say, you know, our sort of uh, core product, what is it that engineers do? I mean, what consultants do. I mean, for the most part, we make reports. The thing that we make, our reports. In fact, engineers day in, day out, week in, week out, um, their product, their output is usually a technical report. Uh, very occasionally, we get to build something, and, and when yeah. we do, uh, of course, that's fantastic. You know, everybody enjoys a, a project that goes all the way into execution. But for the most part, we we produce technical reports. Specifically, us, our technical reports are, are generally required, you know, for under Canadian instrument NI43101 because a lot of our clients are listed on the TSX. And, and 43101 is generally regarded as the gold standard. But we do do obviously work to other standards such as JORC, PERC, uh, SAMREC. We can work to pretty much any standard. The thing about these reports is that the clients are, are generally used uh, for financing. So when our clients are looking for finance, uh, in the marketplace, either uh, with the banks or with the investment institutions. The thing that uh, facilitates that transaction is, is an engineering report. Yeah. And so we're like, function as the mi middleman. We're the guys who, who facilitate the transactions between the, uh, the mining companies or the exploration uh, company and, uh, and the banks. Because at the end of the day, it's a question of show and tell. And it's our it's our report that does the showing and, and the telling. Yeah. Well, I was going to go on to say, why do mining companies use consultancies? And obviously you've highlighted one point there. Is there other reasons why a mining company would use a consultancy? Well, obviously, I mean, the main one is a question of uh, resources and, yeah. and cost. I mean, uh, uh, as I said, the old South African mining houses in their, 
you know, traditional form are all gone. Very few companies can carry that kind of overhead these days. Yeah. So the sort of the internal uh, technical consultancy, that's largely gone. And a lot of those guys who were employed in those positions, uh, rather like myself, um, you know, they've moved into um, in consultancy in terms yeah. of the, you know, the broad stream. So for, for a lot of companies, they just don't have the technical or financial wherewithal to undertake these uh, studies for themselves. So that's when they would approach, um, you know, uh, one of the, uh, the well-known engineers to undertake the work for them. Yeah. So it's basically outsourcing a particular sure. function. So whether it could be helping with mind design, mind planning, optimization, sometimes it obviously needs careful and analytical work around that. And probably it's good to have an external person look at the project and work on those, I suppose, those specifics. Um, yeah, well, sure. I that's... suppose to keep it in-house. Well, yeah, and also it's a, a requirement these days, certainly under 43101, which is all to do with, um, you know, materiality, transparency, and disclosure. It's important that you have a third-party opinion, and yeah. uh, we fulfill the role of independent engineer so that, that the people who read these reports understand that the report has been compiled and put together by a third party that has no direct interest in the product yeah. uh, in the project, and they can uh, hopefully trust what they have to say about it. I, obviously, being in recruitment myself, um, I get a lot of candidates that have probably been working out on site for a number of years then sometimes look to try and get into the consultancy environment. What attributes would you say you actually need to work in the consultancy environment? Oh, that's, another, there, that's a difficult one. It depends, yeah. on, it depends on the individual and it depends on the company. It depends on that. Personally, yeah. personally I hire operators. Okay. Uh, the, yeah. main, the, main, the main reason is, is that uh, you know, the closer you are to your clients, the, the better off you are. And it's, it's really quite simple. It's a question of, of credibility at the end of the day. Um, yeah. If you go into a boardroom setting, if you've never been on a mine or you've never worked at the sharp end, you know, the clients will smell you a, a mile off and, yeah. uh, and you lose all credibility at that point. You need point. that practical experience. Although I will say, I mean, it's nice to have a couple of geniuses in the uh, in the organisation, and it's nice to wheel out a show pony every now and again. But uh, generally speaking, I would say I I, I hire operators and I draw uh, my consultants, and we retrain them and reorientate them, and that as as consultants. But um, yeah, it's you know it's having done it for yourself. It's being able to. Uh, you know, communicate the troubles and understand the issues. And if you've never been at the sharp end uh, of operations, it's sometimes very, it becomes very apparent sometimes when some people are speaking and, and the clients see it straight away. And you have to be able to go toe to toe with the client. You have to understand what they're talking about. And, and they will often test you, chow you out and that, you know, they'll, uh, they'll trade a few war stories about such and such operation or such and such a person and that around there. So they, they will, they will feel you out and they will, they will get the measure of you very quickly. Yeah. And as I said, if you haven't done it, it's, well, it'd be hard to then explain and tra and trans it. and sort of translate that to a client. Um, yeah, that's it. So I, I would say that, um, it's tough being in the mining game. It's tough being a pure consultant unless it's a very specialized field that you do, you're, that you're working in. Yeah. 
yeah. you know, um, maybe on the hydrogeology or somewhere like that, you know, it's, uh, but in terms of the mainstream disciplines on the, on the mining, uh, on the geology, mining, uh, metallurgy and engineering side. Yeah. Um, if you haven't been on the mine, you're going to find it real tough. Yeah. I understand. Right. I want to move on now to TetraCheck um, and talk a little bit about them, why you join them and how, how things have developed for, for yourself and for the company and your well, division. Yeah. Well, as I said, um, initially I joined um, Wardrop Engineering yeah. Inc., Essentially, what happened, a, a colleague of mine that I'd known for many years in South Africa and I'd worked with uh, at Kilbourne in Canada, I was given the remit to expand the uh, base metals and precious metal side of the business for Wardrop. Uh, Wardrop were already into potash and uh, uranium in Saskatchewan and wanted to do a lot more on the base and precious metal side. So they recruited a former uh, colleague of mine. And essentially what he did is he, he went out and uh, uh, recruited all his old um, Kilbourne buddies. Okay, and, yeah. uh, and and reassembled them under a new flag of convenience, if you like, uh, uh, which was which was great, and it was an opportunity to hook up with a uh, a lot of my my old colleagues and my old buddies. And that um, when I was at Kilbourne, we had a great team, we had a great setup, they were an excellent bunch of guys, and so for me, the attraction was to um, to hook up with the old crowd, and um, and that's why I joined them. Yeah. Subsequently thereafter, I mentioned earlier that uh, Wardrop were busy expanding internationally. Uh, they soon realized that not only would they have to grow bigger, but they would have to grow bigger even quicker. And so they started looking around at potential mergers and, and acquisitions. And uh, eventually, uh, obviously, they did the rounds of all the usual subs suspects. But uh, ultimately, they ended up um, executing a transaction with TetraTech. Uh, was a, a good fit at the time certainly because uh, TetraTech were looking to move into the resources sector and hadn't done a, a great deal up until that point and Wardrop was one of their first acquisitions in the sector. Uh, subsequently they've been very acquisitive uh, in acquiring uh, companies around the world. Uh, subsequently they acquired MMI in Denver, uh, Proteus in Australia, Metallica in, in Chile, followed by uh, BPR Bechtel in Montreal, EBA, France, and, uh, and then CRA in Brazil, and uh, latterly, of course, uh, uh, Coffee, uh, which they acquired, yeah. Coffee International. So, uh, so TetraTech has been uh, a, a very acquisitive uh, over the last years in terms of developing um, the resource side of the business. And so, obviously, you, you're he heading up the mining mining division here in the UK how's that how's that been and how's that going <laughs> how's that been <laughs> well okay well up until 2009 2010 it was great great uh, yeah uh, obviously things were going forward we were developing we were growing at that point when we peaked out we we had about 25 here and then of course the recessions hit we were affected probably as much as as, as anybody else, uh, we cut back to, you know, half or slightly less than half our size. You know, it, the uh, nadir of the recession, we were down to 12, uh, but we have, uh, you know, took the medicine, did what we had to do in order to yeah. come through. And uh, I'm pleased to say that uh, we came through all right. And now we're uh, uh, back in a, a growth uh, phase again. So yeah. uh, we're back up currently back up to 22. We're, we're looking to grow um, still further. Yeah. So what did you do during those recession times then to obviously still keep going? I suppose what kind of activities were you doing? Were you doing anything differently? 
Well, no, just working harder at it. Um, yeah. Probably a bit, but obviously like a lot of engineering companies, uh, our primary sort of sales and marketing model is the sort of doer-seller model. Yeah. Um, so the engineers, when they weren't doing, they were doing a lot more set, selling. So it was a question, you know, uh, picking up the phone, hitting the streets, knocking on the doors, yeah. uh, and and, uh, and drumming up the work uh, in order to uh, not. It wasn't a question of survival, but in in order to keep going, you know. Um, so that was leaning. But I well, I also took on a professional marketing manager, a business yeah. a, a manager as well, who was uh, very helpful in assisting us to secure work and and build the brand locally. Uh, um, his role was pri- primarily um, in the city. We were in a situation where our, our clients would say to us, you know, yes, we'd love to give you the work, but we don't have money. Uh, so oftentimes we would take the effort ourselves to source funding in that for clients. Okay. The quid pro quo being that uh, if they are able to secure a deal on the basis of uh, introductions that we've made, then the subsequent project work comes to us and basically how we okay. run it. That worked. Uh, so you had to set up, so you had, you yeah. set up a different structure to yeah. move forward. Yeah, in all honesty, it probably wasn't as successful as we hoped, but we did secure you know, a fair amount of work on that basis and it did contribute and it did help us uh, during the tough times. Yeah, and obviously you're still here now, so obviously it did work in, work in a way, whereas other people, if they didn't structure deals like that would have lost work and probably would have been out of the industry. Sure. I mean, you do what you have to do, right? Certainly. So I mean, any, um, any sort of achievements and successes along the way you would say either yourself or the, uh, the group has achieved? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mentioned that we've taken a, a, a few projects and that from initial technical studies all the way through I, I think probably one of our um, one of our success stories is uh, is Ariana Kizzeltepe project which is a, uh, a joint venture with uh, Zenit in Turkey a very successful project I am I'm delighted to say that uh, the project came in on the numbers on the on the feasibility study numbers uh, which was uh, which was excellent certainly from our perspective and in fact now that they've uh, They've been in production, you know, a couple of years and uh, learned more about their ore body. They're, they're actually slightly up on the feasibility numbers these days. But uh, so that was an excellent success. We, we, we've done for uh, Silver Bear Resources, uh, Volta, Amara, um, Euromax, Sangdong, Oakmont. Yeah, a, a number of companies that, that spring to mind that uh, have, uh, you know, gone on in, uh, in great or made great strides since, uh, since our involvement. Yeah. So how do you see your mining division moving forward? And I suppose what what sort of objectives and future objectives have you got for your actual division? Well, from our perspective, I mean, um, one of the Tetra Tech taglines is is leading with science. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we I actually believe in that. I, I, I really do. Uh, uh, and Probably because, as I said, uh, I've had the luxury in the past to be able to go to th- go investigate things in great detail, do a lot of research, a lot of analysis, and that. But leading with science, uh, you know, certainly we see ourselves, and I say we, I mean I. <laughs> I certainly see us as perhaps a, a little bit different to a, a conventional uh, okay. uh, a consultant in the sense that we are essentially 
engineers, scientists, and technology technologists who, who do consulting. But first and foremost, I see us as, as engineers and scientists. Yeah. Uh, no question. Is that because um, your team's made up of a variety of different types of people and not just pure engineers? Well, there's a lot of that. Of course, we have a lot of uh, discipline, different discipline functions in here. So we have a lot of people who've come out of um, those kinds of environments, uh, you know, highly specialized uh, um, disciplines. Uh, but, yeah, I, I just think it's it's how you see yourselves uh, fundamentally. You know, I was on the other side of the fence for 18, 18 uh, years of my yeah. uh, career, you know, and uh, had a lot of interaction with consultants. So uh, I, I know very well what it's like from the, the client's perspective in you know interacting with consultants yeah i think the thing that uh, perhaps sets us apart really is is that the depth in terms of our scientific and, and engineering background and we like to you know build projects uh, from the ground up and obviously a sound grounding in all the uh, fundamentals is is absolutely critical if you want to do that yeah, and, and also it provides you. Uh, sorry, uh, it also okay. provides you with some with some of the insights. I mean, um, that um, it, it's this it's this sound grounding in the in the in the science that uh, provides the the fundamental insights into a lot of the uh, problems that our clients face. And uh, you know, without that that deep understanding, it's not even possible to uh, uh, conceptualize the the problems, let alone solve it. So uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's very important. I suppose it comes down to understanding your clients' needs and wants, and working out how you can uh, how you can help achieve what, what they're looking yeah. and aiming to do. That's true. Um, and what obviously, when we pro propose um, various strategies or schemes and that for addressing these problems, you know, obviously it's persuading them of uh, of the benefits of pursuing a particular path, and not only persuading them of, uh, them of the benefits, but uh, showing proof too. And, yeah. and showing them where it worked before and, and giving them actual evidence that the, the solutions that you're proposing um, uh, have worked and are working, perhaps that they should adopt them too. Yeah. And how do you see the future of the consultancy industry as a whole? Now, that's well, I think there's... quite a big question. <laughs> um, just want to get your views on how you see the consultancy industry moving forward. Well, I think there's going to be more of them. Okay. Uh, I think there's going to be. I just think that's a, a trend in the in the industry. I think we're going to see uh, mainly because of uh, the economy. Uh, the a lot of companies just just can't carry the the overhead, and so they will want to employ consultancies for when they need them, uh, and not full time. So I think a characteristic will be that there will be more people engaged. Um, in, in consulting in relation to the mining industry as time goes by. Okay, so there's obviously a lot more work out there that consults that consultancies will do as the market, I believe, will start to pick up. Well, I, well, we, we would hope so, but um, as a result of there being more consultants, we'll also be more competitive, of course. Yeah, exactly, certainly. Okay, just want to uh, slowly wrap things up, and for the last uh, sort of few minutes just want to answer, uh, give you some quick fire questions for you to answer why do you enjoy mining it's probably one of the uh, one of the most challenging industries there is i mean it's it's uh, an industry that's made for imaginative um, uh, problem solvers 
uh, I personally find it's just to be involved in challenging, interesting, and and fulfilling uh, work. I mean, okay. the uh, the sense of achievement you get in solving, uh, you know, a complex or difficult challenge is immense. I mean, I I get involved in projects today that I was involved in 20 years ago, and uh, even though I might be involved in them somewhat reluctantly, I think, well, is there something? that I missed the first time round? Is there something yeah. that people in between time haven't seen? Technology's moved on, the industry's moved on, you know, let's take another look. And, and oftentimes you're able to do things, or we are able to do things today that we were just not uh, on the cards or a proposition uh, years ago. So it's being able to solve, uh, you know, uh, complex problems. I think it's the challenge. Some, you know, if, if you're like me and you're driven by, the technical challenge that the the industry uh, presents then uh, yeah it's it's just made for you okay and who would you say the most who is the most influential person on you uh, in your, in your <laughs> career if you have one or you may have a yeah. few well it's very difficult when it comes to influence uh, influences i wouldn't say there's any one individual's had an influence uh, as you go through life and as you go through you know your career uh, most of the people that uh, that are influencing you or having the greatest influence on your life or on your mind or on your project are, are usually, um, you know, high level executives in a, yeah. in an ivory tower far away. Uh, these are the guys who are influencing uh, your life. Uh, however, probably the guy who I had the uh, uh, most admiration for yeah, during my career was a, a chap by the name of uh, Derek Keyes, who was the former chairman of Gencore and uh, who subsequently became the South African Minister of Finance. Uh, I just regard uh, Derek Keyes as a, as, a, as a truly great chairman and, uh, and CEO. Unfortunately, he died earlier this year, which I think was a great loss, and I was deeply saddened. Sorry, but, uh, yeah, but uh, I, I think, um, you know, in experience of uh, people that I've come in contact with or seen or whatever, I just think that he was... Uh, uh, a truly brilliant chairman and CEO, and uh, he's, uh, I'm sad he's gone. Um, is there anything you still want to achieve? Yeah, yeah, of course, there's always something to achieve. I, I think I've got, a, I've got a, a few projects in me yet. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, obviously, um, things that get in a high profile for, uh, you know, the uh, flavor of the month is, is battery materials and yeah. battery supply chains and that. Uh, I have some interesting ideas uh, in relation to lithium, uh, vanadium and manganese processing that I'd like um, to be able to evaluate in the context of a project at, at, at some stage. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I think I'd I, th I think I'd like to get a decent uh, lithium project under my belt at some point. Okay. So anyone who's uh, working lithium out there, <laughs> contact Andy. Yeah. Um, where go. do you see the future of mining? Yeah, that's a big question. I mean, uh, I think in terms of primary extraction, I think is going to be the mainstay of the industry for the foreseeable future. Okay. Uh, but obviously moving north up into the Arctic, uh, south also, and perhaps also eastward. I think we hear a lot of talk these days about, uh, you know, urban mining and the circular economy. And yeah, certainly that's going to uh, play an increasing role. Uh, but uh, it's only going to get you so far when you have a, a growing population, because if you were to recycle everything 100%, that only covers the people who are alive and kicking today and doesn't allow for 
the growing population. Yeah. So, so primary extraction is going to be there for the uh, foreseeable future. I think there are some interesting developments uh, on the horizon, um, certainly in terms of uh, membrane technology, I think uh, in terms of separation process and yeah. some of the new developments in, in membrane technology, uh, I think hold great promise. And, you know, the Holy Grail have been extracting um, uh, minerals and that from seawater is maybe not so far away. Certainly some minerals. I think we're going to see increasing uh, extraction from seawater and that, uh, you know, over the next few years as a result of developments in the membrane yeah. technology. Oh, that's good to hear. I haven't heard of that yeah. before, actually. Yeah. I think progress I think progress in deep sea mining will be slow. It's going to be there. It's going to be part of the picture. But the problem with deep sea mining is, is everything that uh, comes with it, especially on the uh, environmental side and yeah. the, the permitted side. It's a tough environment to operate in. Uh, not only is it, you know, technically extremely challenging, but I think from a from a, a business perspective, it's a very challenging environment. Uh, you know, ultimately, I think uh, ultimately, um, you hear all kinds of talk about people wanting to go and mine uh, asteroids and what have you. Um, but um, yeah, ultimately. Maybe not in my lifetime, but uh, ultimately off-planet. I mean, yeah. with autonom autonomous robot miners. And in fact, many of the technologies we would use uh, on Mars or off-world uh, are already in use uh, on, on a lot of mines. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I think it will be off-planet. But the thing I find interesting about it, when people talk about, uh, you know, mining asteroids and everything is uh, contemplating the kinds of uh, extraterrestrial ore bodies that would justify the investment. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. something interesting, <laughs> to, uh, interesting I mean, to think like about. Astronomical uh, yeah. cost. Uh, to something like exactly. That. Yeah, exactly. Um, but also, there's a lot of talk these days, everybody, you know, the buzzwords and big talk about AI, big data, Internet yeah. of Things. And, and these are clearly already playing a, a, an increasing role right now. But uh, from my own perspective, uh, there's a lot of noise out there, yeah. uh, especially in relation to big data. I think signal processing is going to be one of the big areas. Uh, I think signal processing is what will, um, or it certainly be one of the keys that will unlock all those supposedly hidden treasures within the, 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 the big data. One of the big advantages of signal processing is generally we know what we're looking for. Yeah. And all we need to do is uh, build a, an appropriate filter to see if we can see the... Uh, the pure signal so i definitely think that uh, signal processing is is going to be a major feature in in terms of development of uh, information technologies and that in the future okay lastly um what advice would you give to any sort of mining professionals to sort of better themselves whether that could be a graduate looking to get into mineral processing whether that be someone that is looking to get into an expatriate role again within the mineral processing industry yeah yeah i mentioned previously about you know um uh, having a sound uh, grasp of the fundamentals i think um, a sound grounding and an academic formation are absolutely critical you know you, you've got to be able to grasp the uh, the essential scientific and engineering principles yeah. you know as i mentioned without which it's it's just difficult to conceptualize a problem let alone go into solving it you know the tough problems the most intractable problems require a deep insight and understanding at a fundamental level so it's very important i think that engineers uh develop um 
a deep, deep, I'm not talking about in-depth understanding, I'm talking about a deep, deep understanding of the discipline in which they're involved in. Yeah. One of the most important things they could, people can do is build yourself a, a technical library. I mean, yeah. I, I have a technical library and often when I enter an engineer's office, uh, I will look at his bookshelf. Uh, yeah. And if I, if I don't recognize a, a few of the standard texts and, and that up there, my view is the oh. guy's not, not properly equipped. Yeah. Um, and I suppose that's where you're going to add value by having that greater understanding of engineering and obviously the industry. Yeah. And the other thing is when I have conversations with clients, uh, you know, I, I tell them, look, it's not me who's telling you this. I'm just the vehicle um, through which, you know, um, I'm, I'm giving you the, the, the collective wisdom of, of the industry. I mean, I, I stand on the shoulders of others, of course, as yeah. you do. And, uh, you know, uh, most of it's known, most of it's been um, known before. And, and, and basically, when I provide solutions uh, to clients, there's usually, you know, support for any particular solution. It can go back decades. Yeah. It can go back an awful long way. And you can lead the, the client through his problems from when it was first identified through what has been researched over the years, what has been developed over the years, the technologies, what has been tried over the years. And, and, and it's just so important to, I think, to have that information at your disposal. Uh, I mean, I have translations of Russian papers and that that I've kept for 30 years because I know that just happens to be uh, the only English translation of that particular research paper okay. in existence. Quite valuable. <laughs> well, um, my, my wife's not happy being buried <laughs> under, under piles and piles of papers, but, uh, but nonetheless... Um, you know, it's it's acquiring the information, looking after the information, and buried it in the store. And your technical lot library is a store of knowledge that yeah. is at your fingertips, and it's right there when you need it. Yeah, well, that's great advice there, uh, Andy. And um, yeah. we're going to close now. So I really appreciate your time in uh, yeah. sharing your journey and uh, yeah. the insights of the uh, consultancy environment, um, and right. some of the great things that you've been involved in and. Uh, and some of your yeah. sort of future predictions. Um, yeah. If our audience wants to contact you, how can they uh, go about doing that? Uh, yeah, they can contact me at, uh, at Coffee Geotechnics UK, uh, Tetra Tech in Swindon, uh, okay. directly. Uh, it's it's on the web. You'll find me. Um, most people find me no problem at all. Yeah, no worries. And are you on any uh, social media platforms at all? Yeah, you'll, you'll find me on the usual uh, places, uh, LinkedIn, LinkedIn. Uh, Twitter, yeah. Um, and Facebook and those kinds of places. Yeah, I can provide those uh, addresses. And alternatively, if you wanted to uh, contact me, if you wanted to ask uh, Andy a question, you can email me at rob at mining-international.org and I can pass that on to, uh, on to Andy. Um, well, thank you again for listening. Hope you in, uh, enjoyed this podcast. Um, and until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.